Hello and welcome to another episode of the Very Funny Podcast. It's good to see you again. I hope you're doing great. I hope you're excited. I got a light streaking across my face. So we're filming today in the day. Usually I film these at night when it's really chill and quiet and stuff like that for me to be collected with my thoughts. But uh, as you guys know, I travel a lot for my shows and stuff. I was in Pennsylvania yesterday. Shout out to the University of Pennsylvania for having me. I had a great time uh, with all the students over there doing a show. And in a couple of hours... I'm heading off to Arizona. I got shows this weekend in Phoenix, Tempe, right next to each other uh, at the Improv. If you guys got friends or family there, make sure they know. Also, May 4th, I'm going to be in Toronto. Don't forget about that. In in April 24, I'm going to be at Irvine, uh, at the Irvine Improv. So basically, the reason I'm filming at this time is I, I flew in this morning from Philadelphia and from Pennsylvania, which is in Philadelphia, and uh, I'm <laughs> recording this, and then I'm heading to the airport. So, um, do you like the lighting like this? It's different. I'm, it's natural daylight around me with a bit of studio lighting, so it all works out. Anyways, uh, I'm excited to be with you guys again. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the last. Look at that light coming down here. I am the chosen one. The light, the sun is shining on me, shining on me, Father of Assad. Do you know that? Okay, so Assad, Father of Assad, which is the album that, uh, that uh, what's his name? Um, wait, maybe I can get rid of this. I have like a, a mirror here. Let's see what? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it worked. I'm a genius. I got a, I got a closet, basically, that, um, that uh, has a mirror on it, and it's, uh, it was reflecting the light, so it worked. Who would have thought? I'm trying to like position something now to kind of, yep, there it is, done. That's what we call budget solutions, my friend. So Assad, father of Assad, Assad in Arabic means lion. So when you hear DJ Khaled saying father of Assad, he called his son Assad, which means lion. Uh, because he's big about lions, right? Like lion, he used to always keep saying that. Uh, my name Nimmer means tiger. Just, you know. So DJ Khaled, if you ever watch this podcast and you're like, why do I like this guy so much? What is it about this kid that is so remarkable? <laughs> we're related, bro. I mean, you're, you're a son, we're... Uh, we're cousins. <laughs> yes. So um, in the last episode, we were uh, in part three, was it? It was part three, right? Of uh, how um, stand-up comedy in the Middle East started. Let me double check so I'm not being an idiot. Yeah, definitely part three. So today is going to be uh, part four. Look, there it is. Very funny podcast with Nimmer. I actually have it open here because I was going over all of the uh, uh, questions that people had sent my way so we can answer some questions at the end of the episode. I didn't do that last time. But uh, yeah, so episode six, how stand-up came to be in the Middle East, part three. So today's part four. Uh, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the last episode. In the last episode, we finished off uh, with basically why and where my motivations came to actually not get into stand-up comedy professionally. My motivations were there from when I was a child. But um, why it, it I went into it the way that I did, with an emphasis on no politics, no religion, and one love, which I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and it had to do with the wars in Lebanon that I had experienced, the division that I had seen in the country, and the power that I believed stand-up comedy could serve to help bring people together and kind of structure the country better and maybe help the region. And I'm going to kind of pick up from there, and uh, and we'll take it out from there. Basically, when we last, when in our last episode, our hero was in the last episode, we finished off at the. Uh, with me leaving my, why I decided to leave my my family business to get into stand-up professionally in 2006. You see, up until that point, it wasn't that I wasn't doing stand-up. It was, I was doing it. It was just, <clears throat> I wasn't charging people to see me. 
anytime there'd be a concert for a friend of mine, like a band or something like that, I'd attach myself to it. So kind of like following in the vein of what I was doing during the AUB outdoors, I would head out, go to uh, a concert or a gig. Somebody was playing in a bar somewhere and, um, and we'd, uh, and I'd host. So before they'd come up, I'd do like 15, 20 minutes of stand-up. I still had a following going. People were telling me we'd love to see you sometime. So there was chatter about that. It's just where? Where was I going to do it? There is no comedy club in the Middle East. Uh, There was none. There was nowhere you could go and try out your material. There was nowhere you could go and hang out with other comics. Here in Los Angeles, comedy clubs, comics go out in, in all over America, not just in L.A. There are comedy clubs everywhere. You go and you try out your material. Uh, if you suck, it's okay because there are other comics and you're only doing five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, whatever it is. And there are other comics that carry the show. So you are at liberty to go and try something. If it didn't work out, that's not a big deal. Um, I never had that. So it, it, there was, it was, a, it was a high, what's the word I'm looking for? A high obstacle to basically a, a high barrier to entry. So that was my main reason why I was kind of like not in it completely. And I was working full time. And as we know, working out like a crazy madman and dealing with a lot of anger and resentment and fury and frustration. And after the war in Lebanon in 2006, I kind of uh, came to terms with that. Another event that was a very big effect coming leading up to that was the assassination of our prime minister in 2005, Rafi al-Hariri, on Valentine's Day, February 14. Um, and that was an event that was cataclysmic to everybody. A lot of innocent civilians died. And um, it, it wouldn't be the first time that I would come very close myself to brushing with death. But that's not something that anybody who isn't in Lebanon hasn't experienced themselves. I had driven by. So our prime minister in 2005 was um, assassinated allegedly by the Syrian regime at the time. I'm going to emphasize allegedly because a lot of people, if I say that it was the Syrian regime, will say that, no, that's an allegation. And they get into a political discussion and it becomes about, no, it was Israel and no, it was this and no, it was that. Let me put you in the frame of mind of my belief system and most people at the time in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon was under the Syrian rule for a very long time. Uh, Following the civil war, the Syrians kind of Run it, ran everything, and for many, many years, uh, and this is me speaking of my own personal experience, some people were very happy with the Syrian rule because it benefited them. But in my experience, the Syrian rule was a complete disaster for freedom of speech, for employment opportunities, there was a lot of corruption, and uh, we weren't our own government. You know what I'm saying? We weren't governing ourselves. To a more or lesser extent, we still aren't because we're always caught in between other bigger, larger scale wars, but at this time it was more of a direct influence. And nothing in the country would happen without the Syrian know-how. Their intelligence officers were everywhere, they knew everything that was going in. Lebanon is very notoriously difficult to get anything into it without being government or or sanctioned uh, to, to smuggle things in. Um, without somebody being behind it. You know what I'm saying? It's a very, when it comes to intelligence, especially back then, Syrians had their hands everywhere. And, uh, you know, we had friends who were uh, who would protest and they'd be beaten within an inch of their lives uh, for speaking out at this protest against Syrian rule. Job opportunities weren't given to certain people. So they were they were definitely horrible, horrible, horrible people in Lebanon. There's no debate about that. And people can debate me about that. And that's fine. You know, and like I said, there's there are people who really benefited and had a great time under um, when Lebanon was under Syrian rule. There were certain parts of Lebanon that were treated favorably, other parts of Lebanon that were not. Uh, I was not in an area that was suffering under Syrian rule whatsoever. 
But I can tell you that college students and youth students and a lot of universities felt very disenfranchised by the Syrian rule. And in 2005, I was still, it was my final year of university at the American University of Beirut. And I uh, was driving to university one day, super late, and I drove right by an area that minutes later would be completely destroyed by tons of TNT that was placed underneath the ground, used to blow up the entire convoy of our prime minister and to ensure that he would die because he had a, a very powerful armored convoy. They blew him to smithereens and everyone with him. Tons of innocent civilians died. He died in an area uh, called St. George uh, is a very famous hotel. He was right there between the Phoenicia and the St. George Hotel. And it was a massive explosion. I'll never forget that day because we drove by there. I walk into class from the lower gate of AUB. I'm sitting in class and the ground trembles and you feel it much more powerful than what we're used to. And usually in Lebanon, when we hear, when we, when we feel the ground tremble at that point, that means uh, uh, an Israeli plane dropped a bomb. But there were no sounds of planes. We usually hear sonic booms. They constantly violate our airspace. So we, would, we were used to the sound of a sonic boom of, a, of an airplane flying above. And I remember when that thud came, there was, uh, we were in class and there was a bit of confusion because we were all like, uh, that doesn't happen just like that. I remember my initial feeling, I still remember, was maybe that was like a gas explosion, right? Like something, there was a gas leak somewhere. And something big happened. It was definitely big. Like we felt we paused. But we're so used to this stuff that we just continued with the class for about 30 seconds. And I remember a student in our class got a phone call. And he picks up his phone. And in class, the phone rings and he goes, hello? Like on a really loud voice, panicky. And this isn't something he would normally do. This isn't a douchey thing. But it was because we had heightened senses based on what had gone down. And the phone was ringing. This guy was connected to the prime minister in a way or another picked up the phone, and then he bolted out of class. And somebody said, they must have hit Hariri. Hariri was the prime minister at the time. Lebanese people are very good at deciphering complex situations under times of uh, duress. And we ran out of class, all of us, and we looked to the skies, and you could see so much smoke. The, the air was thick with smoke, and it was terrifying. Traffic was halted. And um, my sister had dropped me off and driven back in that direction to go up to the main gate of AUB. And I started fucking running, man. Because I thought my sister was involved. It was, you know, there's a traffic. She could have been wherever that smoke was coming from. I'm running. I remember the thickness in the air, the ash. And I'm calling my sister. It's not connecting. Whenever there are bomb blasts that would happen in Lebanon, the phones go down. And... Um, so I remember running and all that it, it, to cut it short so I don't think it draw you guys on with suspense. My sister was fine. She had made it up. But uh, we did get in touch. We found out that there was a huge explosion. My dad had called me and said that it looks like it has something to do with Hariri, who once again was our prime minister. And Hariri was a guy who was more or less beloved by a lot of people, right? He was one of the more popular politicians. You know, in politics, you always have people who love and hate you. This guy was was loved abnormally a lot for a lot of people in Lebanon. Uh, usually you'll have um, religious leaders or political leaders who are really adored by their specific constituents, right? Um, if they're Maronite Christians, the Maronite Christians love them. The Roman Catholic Christians don't. And then, you know, if he, uh, Druze religion, they love him, but the Sunni Muslims don't. You know, it's like that. 
This guy was, there was a lot of love for him in many sectors of Lebanese society. He was also internationally renowned. He'd bring a lot of investors into Lebanon. He was good friends with the French president, Jacques Chirac, at the time. And he was a well-known international figure. We had some uh, financial summits for Lebanon that he helped engineer and brought in a lot of money for the country. So he had very big connections. And he was a very, very wealthy individual. He was a multi-billionaire, one of the richest people in the Middle East, uh, kind of a self-made man. And it was a... he was to target him was like targeting. It's the equivalent of targeting the president in the United States of America in terms of like targeting a political figure in Lebanon. The prime minister is the more most powerful political figure. So we have a democracy, but the president isn't as powerful as the prime minister. And we have a parliament and the parliament is the one that elects the prime minister and elects the president and we elect the parliament. So it's a parliamentary democracy. Sorry, I don't know that. <laughs> That's Alexa. I don't know if you could hear that. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm explaining, Alexa. So people know. So because maybe they don't know that Lebanon is a country with 19 different religious sects crammed into a place smaller than San Diego County with 4 million people inside of it. And right now, 3 million Syrian refugees, almost 100% of the population and a crazy myriad of problems. But that is the backdrop of our story, right? We went up. I ran up, uh, connected with my sister at AUB. And we run to the cafeteria in the American University of Beirut where they have a giant screen TV. And that cafeteria, I think, off the top of my head, fits maybe 500 people, max capacity. There must have been 2,000 people in there. Dude, you couldn't, we were crammed shoulder to shoulder and you could hear a pin drop in that cafeteria. Everybody was staring at this one TV set. Volume was on max, could barely hear what's happening. But breaking news, Prime Minister Hariri assassinated, targeted, assassinated, and the devastation was clear. I remember a woman screamed in the uh, cafeteria. People started crying. And it was a devastating event. What happened after that was we found out, of course, that he had been assassinated on Valentine's Day to send a specific message to the Lebanese people. The wide belief was that it was the Syrians, let's say at least half of the population believed it was the Syrians. That's not me stretching. I want to once again say that there was no proof. Apparently that it was the Syrians. This is people's opinions. You know, some people will say, yeah, it was definitely the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Other people say it wasn't the regime of Bashar al-Assad. The funny thing is, it depends. The people who say it wasn't Bashar al-Assad are people who are already part of that regime or allied with that regime. And the people who say that it was are people who are against that regime. So it is a biased opinion, no matter how you take it, right? And it is an opinion because there is no concrete evidence, right? There's, there is a lot of evidence. There was a special tribunal and some people will point to that special tribunal and say, well, they concluded that it was him. And then other people will say the special tribunal was fixed. So you're never going to get anywhere with this. And I don't want this to turn into that conversation because that's besides the point. But after that, uh, what happened in Lebanon was something called the Cedar Revolution. And I actually walked in those protests because it was a historical event. Lebanon was in shockingly divided its entire life, obviously civil war and everything. When the prime minister passed away or was assassinated rather and murdered, I don't know the official number. I can't remember. Something like 1.5 million or 2 million, like something, not 2 million, probably 1 or 1.5 million maybe 800,000, so don't quote me on this, but an absurd number of Lebanese people, unprecedented amount of Lebanese people from all religious backgrounds, all political backgrounds, took to the streets. We all met in a place called Martyr Square, which is a historical square in downtown Beirut where there's this gorgeous statue. I'm going to post a picture of it right now so you can see it. A gorgeous statue made from shrapnel. This is what you're seeing right now. It's made from shrapnel from uh, bombs that dropped 
and mortars and stuff like that during the war that killed people. And it's called Martyr Square, Sehd al-Shahada in uh, Arabic. And uh, Shahada means martyr and Sehd is square. And it stands in the middle as a reminder of that we rose from the ashes like the Phoenix because we are Phoenicians, descendant of the Phoenicians. That's what the Lebanese are. And everybody walked to Martyr Square, over a million. And uh, here's some footage as well. I'll find some online and post some of it. But everybody was there, united to demand the end of the Syrian occupation of Lebanon. Uh, what followed afterwards was uh, a government called Arbatash Adar, which means the 14th of March coalition. And um, they were the opposite Syrian opposition in the government. They came together as one kind of opposition unit. And they were, I believe, I can't remember exactly how much, how many they were, like something like 22 ministers or something. And they led the kind of movement at the time. We had a president who was a puppet for the Syrian regime uh, and a lot of ministers and stuff that were. And this was to kind of push them all out. And the Syrians ended up pulling out a couple months later, uh, continuous pressure. They ended up pulling out of Lebanon and Lebanon gained some of its independence back to a more or less extent. Lebanon is difficult to be truly independent because our will of the people isn't really decided by us uh, because we're constantly caught in between very dangerous situations that require an amazing amount of patience, wisdom, and we've learned over the years to be very patient and wise. Because when you're caught in the middle of a proxy war between America and Russia, which filters into Saudi Arabia and Iran, and Syria on one side, and America and Israel and Saudi Arabia on the other side, and you have these two kind of things, and I'm not saying those are allies, just before anybody gets me wrong, but usually the interests line up like that. And you're a country as small as Lebanon, on the border with Israel and Syria, and we don't have a major military, like we don't have an air force. We have the most powerful military probably in the world when it comes to warrior spirit because they're fierce. They have to be. But we're caught in between global juggernauts duking it out. So in Lebanon, a lot of the time, our interests aren't really our own. We're kind of like always caught in between this. I think the, the one thing, if you ask Lebanese people, what is the one thing you want? And I think anybody, everybody can agree that I think everybody would say to be left the fuck alone. If you ask anybody in Lebanon, like, what is the ultimate thing they want? They'd say we'd like stability and to be left alone. Give us those two and Internet, if you can, and traffic. I think Lebanon would be a, a, a utopia if they, we could get faster Internet, 24 hour electricity and solve the traffic problem. But whenever we come into things like, let's say we want to solve the traffic problem, you can't because there's so much corruption. Which company is going to take over the projects of building this bridge? Which politician does it belong to? This politician is answers to America. This politician answers to Syria and Russia. This politician, and it's just, and the people on the ground are like, we answer to the fact that we're getting paid very little money for what we do. This isn't a sustainable wage and conditions need to improve. And the new generation is astoundingly heroic. They're just these incredible, incredible individuals. Ingenuity, decency, passion, drive, fierce competitiveness with everything stacked against us the new generation has pulled their weight and undone an incredible amount of wrong that the previous generation has done we've passed laws to protect animals we've uh passed laws to make it to we've anti-pass law we've taken out laws that made it illegal to be homosexual only country in the middle east that actually has a law right now 
uh, that doesn't have a law that makes it illegal to be homosexual. That used to be a thing. We've uh, we're campaigning constantly for more women's rights. Campaigning campaigning constantly to g- allow women to give the citizenship to their children. You'd be shocked to realize why women can't give the citizenship if they're married to a non-Lebanese man to their children because of weird fears about upsetting the balance. And it's, it all comes into this very strange political uh, kind of situation makeup that we have in Lebanon. I don't want to get turn this into a political thing, so I'm kind of skimming over this detail on purpose. And please do not open debates in the comments. If debates in the comments are opened about who did what and what political thing, I will be deleting them. So I'm just putting them out there. And this is, of course, for the people who watch on YouTube or wherever there's a comment section, wherever I post this video. The point of the matter is Lebanon faced a change. In 2005, the Syrians were out. And that's when a campaign, then we were followed very quickly by the Israeli war in Lebanon, which a lot of people uh, uh, weren't happy with, because when it ended, the country was in shambles, it was rebuilt, um, and things went on. But by the time 2006 had come, between 2005 and 2006, and the, the war that Israel waged on Lebanon, Hezbollah was in Lebanon fighting against Israel, the Lebanese army was trying to just mediate and not really get involved, the, the amount of tug and pull on every side of Lebanon had its effect. Those two years were so massive in terms of dividing the country that it was dangerous as far as I was concerned. And so when I came in to start doing stand-up comedy and I was I was like, when I do stand-up, I want to give, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, a safe space. I want a place where people can go and escape this shit. I want people to not only escape it, because you can escape, you can get high, you can do whatever to escape something, right? You can get drunk. That's not what I want. I don't want to distract you. I want you to find a place where you can escape this and sit side by side with people you normally wouldn't be sitting with. And by escaping together, you become closer. I always figured if you sit down with somebody and you laugh together, it's going to be harder for you to argue afterwards, right? Because when you laugh at something and somebody else laughs at the same thing, you got that in common, man. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever the hell you are, atheist, satanic, whatever you are. If me and you are laughing at the same thing, we're looking at each other, we're nodding, we agree. Laughter is the most powerful weapon in the world. And it's the biggest indicator of truth. When somebody laughs, it's undeniable. You agree. Now, whether or not you agree 100%, that's what's to be said. But that laughter means I planted the seed. That's the power of comedy. And I figured if I could put people in a room and get them to laugh together and then they leave that room, if I if they come into my world and I and in my world they see something, they see a different world. They see this is how I define stand up. It's world creation. You get up on that stage and you create a world and you invite people in. When they're a part of your world, they see your world. They're part of your world. It's your rules, it's your definition, it's your dynamics. When the show is over, they go back to their world. If they see their world differently because they spend an hour in yours, then you can call yourself a stand-up comic. That's my definition of stand-up comedy. And that's my approach to it. I figured if I could do that, what kind of world would I want to make? And I started stamping. And my, my when I wanted to take this professional, the first thing I came up with was to stamp my posters, no politics, no religion, one love. It became like the, the, the mantra. So I'm going to put a bookmark right there on the no politics, no religion, one love thing and tell you how it all started when I decided to go pro. So 
I started harboring feelings that I'm going to do this professionally because I figured I can do a scene like I just said, no politics, no religion, one love, unite the country. This wasn't about me following my passion anymore. This was about me changing the world, which was the catalyst for me to dive into it. Up until then, I was like, man, if I follow my passion, it's a bit selfish because we got a family business going on and we're making money for the family. We're not poor anymore. For the first time, we actually have money to spare. We can maybe buy some stuff for the family, like invest in ourselves and our assets. I just graduated from university, so the cost has gone down that my parents had to burden. And for me to just leave all that, just because I want to follow my dream, it was like, it felt selfish. It felt like I was betraying my family. It wasn't until I realized that comedy could change the world, could change the Middle East, could change my country, that I started to realize that this was bigger than me and bigger than than that. And it would be doing a service to my family. And I think that was the catalyst for me to start really moving aggressively in the direction of going pro, which means charging people to see me and leaving my work. Um, and I, I basically was working nonstop, but at the same time, I started to do comedy more by attaching myself to these events that other people would be doing bands. They'd be playing music. I'd go and do their thing. Then one day, the American University of Beirut is having an improv competition where people come up and just do their thing. So I register, you know, they called me, actually, I remember now, they called me, they said, you want to be a part of it? That's how I found out I had graduated by now. And I'm totally against going back to your university and reliving your glory days. I'm not like that, but I needed a stage at any point in time. And I had just graduated, so technically it's okay. So I went in and I filmed it. I had a habit of filming all of my uh, appearances. One day, I hope I can find that tape. And I improvised a set, maybe 20 minutes, killed it, did great, really, really funny, started out with a couple jokes that I knew, did a bit about Haifa Wehbi, which is a very popular singer in Lebanon, I remember that, I don't remember what else I did, there may have been a Bush joke, or George Bush or something or two, and killed that performance, and then left, it was, after watching the, the tape, I was like, man, this is good, I got the courage to put it on a DVD and approach, see, this is my business mind thinking. I was like, okay, if I'm going to start doing stand-up, I need to make this something I can make a living from. And when people ask me, Nimmer, what do you what do you recommend if somebody wants to get into stand-up, what they should they do? I say, get a business degree or at least study business or take courses or go online, research it on YouTube. Most important thing to your success is sustainability for you to be able to practice your craft. My father And remember this sentence because it's going to come back later in this episode. My father used to always tell me a man or woman cannot have two gods. You can only have one God. His meaning behind that was you have to put all of your effort into one thing. You have to be focused. You have to be disciplined. You can't be all over the place or else you're going to be kind of okay at everything and not excel at anything. So I got to the point I had this DVD and I'm like, I'm going to put this on DVD, this tape. And I'm going to approach Mix FM. Mix FM is the number one radio station in the Middle East. It was the biggest radio station in Lebanon as well. They were the coolest radio station, and they still are. And that's not just because I'm with them right now, disclaimer. But this is back in 2006. They didn't know who the hell I was. And I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it cold call. I'm going to put this on a DVD. I'm going to knock on their door. I'm going to say, hi, my name is Nimmer. I'm a stand-up comic. I'd like to work with you. Here's a DVD of what I can do. If you think I'm funny and you think there's something we could do together, please give me a call. And I did that. I handed it over to a guy called Christian Nahas. Christian, Christian, Nahas is his last name. Or we call him Chris. He's still with Mix FM, and he's a nucleus there. He was really nice. He took the DVD, and I walked out, and I'll be very honest with you. Um, I figured I'd never hear back from them. And if I did, I'd get the typical Arab, like, uh, 
We watched. It was okay. You know, you need some work. We will try. They always, Arabs have a disgusting approach of constantly putting you down to try to negotiate with you, no matter what it is. So think if you're going to buy a car and you go and you're like, "Uh, I don't know, even though you love the car, just so that you can bring the price down, right? So I figured that's what was going to happen. I get the DVD. I, I leave. The next day, I get a call from Chris. He's like, hey, I gave your DVD to Raj. Raj is the guy who runs the place. He watched it. He loved it. He wants to see you immediately. When can you come in? I was like, when can you see me? They're like, tomorrow? I'm like, I'm there. I was in Tripoli with my dad. Tripoli is the north of Lebanon. With my dad visiting my uncle, who's still out there. If you guys live in Tripoli, Balco Sport, that's my uncle's place. A lot of you know that. Shout out to him. He's an incredible individual. And um, I closed the phone. I told my dad I couldn't believe it. I remember the look on my dad's face. Like, when are we going to end with this bullshit? Because stand-up in Lebanon, it's just, it's not going to happen, you know? Being an artist in Lebanon means going hungry. But I didn't care. I was going full-fledged. And this was without the support of my parents, but for good reason. I want to make that clear. Next day, I go to Mix FM, and I sit down with Raj. Raj was an icon in Lebanon. Raj was, he started Mix FM himself in the 90s. I mean, this guy should have a podcast. He started his his Mix FM in the early 90s. He was a renowned DJ with vinyls, crushing it everywhere in the 90s he buys a radio um station frequency uh when they were giving out like it was times of war and there was chaos and he got it off of somebody and it was I'll, one day I'll, I'll one day i'll have a podcast you know what i'll do a podcast episode with him when i'm in lebanon and he'll tell the story in detail but this guy would dj nine hours a day with his best friend rap bass who ended up passing away, may he rest in peace, years later, and he was an icon in and of himself. And they would do like nine-hour shifts, and they would DJ, like there wouldn't be electricity, they'd have to pull the motor, and they'd cut their hands, and they'd still mix, and like it was gangster, right? And they built the number one radio station in the Middle East. Two kids, right? And Raj mainly, and, and Rap Bass is his kind of sidekick, if I'm not mistaken. Raj will clarify one day. But he was an icon, man. And this guy at this point had somewhat retired from doing his own, he got retired, he had taken a break, to give a chance to all the other DJs. He started supporting all the local DJs. He started bringing in bands, groups, concerts, trying to bring up the tourism of Lebanon, raise the profile, incredible individual. And here I am, I find myself sitting across from Raj the next day, a young 22, 21-year-old me, something like that. 23, I'm not 100% sure. And he cuts straight to the chase. He's like, Nimmer, you're incredible. You have unbelievable potential. And if you really want to do this, I believe you're going to be one of the greatest comics of all time. You have to understand, for uh, for somebody to tell me that, a Lebanese person, to acknowledge my talent, talent like that, had not happened yet besides people who would come to my shows. Nobody in the industry ever took me seriously that way, and they never will, because there's a there's a sense of jealousy. in a, When you're in a region where people are constantly put down, and people are constantly forced down, and they have dreams and aspirations, and they can never follow them because they have something stopping them. Either they can't travel because the Lebanese passport doesn't let them go to any other country without getting a visa, and they get denied at every turn. Either they had all their money saved up, they opened up a shop, it was great, then Israel bombed, ruined their business, shut down the entire summer season, they went bankrupt. It's There's always these incredible forces and it creates this internal resentment that when you see somebody else succeeding, it's very difficult. 
And I'm not saying that I'm judging people for this. I understand them. It's very difficult to be happy for somebody pursuing their dream and succeeding. No matter the odds. I had impossible odds against me just like other people. But I was lucky enough due to a mix of fortune, fortune being luck, due to a mix of luck, opportunity, personal ambition and drive, hard work, and privilege that I was able to come out on top. I had an American passport, so it helped further my career. I could go to countries immediately, a drop of a hat, get business, bring in more income to market myself to do stuff. That was a privilege. I grew up with stand-up comedy in my culture. Privilege. I had educated parents who loved each other and supported their son, weren't divorced. I didn't come from a broken home. Privilege. And um, so to hear a man tell me that, was it, it was really a moment for me. And he said... I don't know what we're going to do, but you have to be part of the Mix FM family. And I said, well, he goes, what do you want from me? I go, I honestly have your crowd. The people who listen to Mix FM are the people I want to come to my show. English speaking, young, partiers, people who are already pretty much united, who have shed the ways of the past, the future. I want them at my show. So I know you have the market that I want. And I'm here to tell you, I have these skills. Can we do something so I can get your market? And he looked at me and he said, can you do phone taps, phone pranks? And I said, actually, when I was 13, 14 years old and 15, me and my best friend, Rabia, used to prank people up and uh, put it on speakerphone and tape it. There was a thing called the Jerky Boys. I don't know if you guys know about this, but they used to do phone pranks and stuff, and we were influenced by them, and we did our own ones. And we have cassette tapes. I should find the cassette tapes. We'd call people up, make them sing on the phone, tell them they're winning trips to Hawaii. It was terrible in retrospect, but as kids, we thought it was hilarious. They were hilarious. And the people we were pranking weren't really like innocent individuals that we didn't know. It was usually people we knew, and then they'd find out it was us. And it was. But they were. we would take them for a complete ride. I'd put on accents, and it was crazy. And I had these on tape. And he goes, okay, how about we do a test? Here's what I'm offering you. Do phone pranks for me, and we'll make it a segment on the radio. In return, take your pick. I can give you money, or I can give you spots on the radio for free to advertise your shows. Which do you want? I immediately took the spots on the radio because I was like, the money is short term. And that's gonna, I'm going to take that money and spend it on marketing for myself anyways. Imagine if I, take, if I have radio commercials on Mix FM. Dude, that's the biggest legitimacy you could ever get. Like being on Mix FM is huge. Think Power 106 in Los Angeles. Think, you know, iHeartRadio anywhere, right? And this is in the early 2000s. Radio was very influential, still is today in Lebanon. So I took the spots and he's like, all right, let's do a trial run. So I went in and I did a phone tap. Uh, and I, we did a, we called it the phone taps with Nimmer and, uh, we went in to do some tests and the first phone prank I ever did, which was a test ended up becoming the biggest viral hit, maybe of my career. Well, no, I've had bigger ones, but for a good time. And it was me pranking Burger King as a Japanese guy called Mitsurugi. And, uh, you know what? I'm going to play some audio from it either now or in a second. Me, in a second, me as Mitsurugi. Mitsurugi was a character from the video game Soul Calibur. 
and I called myself Mitsurugi, and I read lyrics from the anime One Piece from the song, and I spoke a bit of Japanese because I was so into anime, as you know from the last episode I mentioned this, and uh, in Lebanon, Burger King delivers, so I called them as a Japanese guy, uh, desperately trying to order over the phone because I'm very hungry, and I'm in AUB. Here's a bit from it. McDonald's in front of you. No, no, Burger King. Ha, ah, sorry, sorry. You Burger King? I'm Burger King. Okay, okay. McDonald's to Burger King. Okay, you want Burger King. Ha. Your dorm, where are you living? Ha, dorm inside AUB. Okay. Sorry, is there anyone who speaks English or Arabic beside you? No, and I am very hungry. Okay. <laughs> I am sorry. Don't worry. What do you want to order? Thank you. In Japan, we have a double whopper. You have a double okay, whopper? Okay, double whopper, we have it. Ha. With the cheese? With the cheese, uh, yes, yellow. Large fries? Ha, large de fries. Okay, large de fries. Sushi? Sushi, we don't have sushi. Sushi burger, no sushi burger? No, no sushi burger, we don't oh, have sushi michi ni mo yoto su Do you want to try the mozzarella cheese sticks? Mozzarella... Mozzarella cheese. H- how much uh, money? In dollar, uh, 1.75 cents. Do you know how much in yen? In yen? Huh? No. Oh. How many dollars uh, the yen equal? Uh, 9.2. Every 9 yen, oh. 1 dollar. Michi ni mo yoto su wa nurushita. Oui. Okay, it's uh, 18 yen. 18.3 yens. Ha! Okay! Okay! Okay, we Sold! Okay. And basically, this phone tap, uh, I recorded that one, I recorded a few others, and we called Raj into the studio. He heard it, and he was like, okay, this is incredible. It was actually, people might not know this, over 55 minutes long. When you phone prank someone, it what you hear can't be the whole thing because you can't take somebody for a ride that quick nobody's that stupid it's very rare so if you take your time and you go back and forth and there's you know uh uh, mundane conversation the other person on the phone starts to buy it they get in sucked into it and then you can edit it down into its best parts without taking anyone out of context i've never done that i'll never take somebody's reply to something else and stitch it into something i said to make it seem like i never do that i just cut out parts where we're like just talking nothing He's like, you need to cut it down to five minutes. And um, I was like, how the hell am I going to cut it down to five minutes? So I started editing. I brought it down to 12 minutes. He's like, it's amazing. Still has to be five. Can't be longer than five. Five is already a stretch. Three is preferable. And it was in- infuriating. I remember at the time, I'm like, dude, this guy. And uh, I, <laughs> he just keeps making me edit stuff. Like you'd feel, but I knew deep inside. I had a feeling with him like I had with my father that, Whatever he would do, even though I, if I didn't agree with it or I somewhat resented it or maybe I felt that he was wrong, that I knew whatever he was saying was for my own good and I respected it. I also respected him greatly. I was using a software called Sony SoundForge to do the edits. I had never uh, done that before. It was something I was doing that was new. It was difficult to learn. He taught me himself how to use it. And I'm sitting there editing and plugging away. Finally, when it was ready, and I edited a couple more, he's like, okay, we're going to do a, he did a full thing for me. He got a guy we have called uh, Dave, who does our voiceovers for MixFM, an epic, epic voice, legendary, iconic voice in Lebanon for all massive events. He did all the retainers, like the phone taps with Nimmer, you know, like the whole thing uh, on MixFM every, I think it was every Monday and Friday or something like that. They would play them on, uh, on our afternoon show at the time. And this was huge. 
And we debuted the phone taps. And dude, to say they were a hit is an understatement. These things went viral like crazy. The Mitsurugi one is one of the greatest things I ever put out. You can find it. If you put Nimmer Mix FM phone tap, some people have it uploaded. I don't have it on my channel. It's got hundreds of thousands of views. It's crazy. And uh, this was the first thing I did when I walked into the studio. That goes to show you sometimes the most planned things aren't the ones that are going to get you all the fame and success and recognition. Sometimes it just happens. It was just, it was meant to be. You know what I'm saying? And um, <coughs> the the incredible thing was, I remember once I went to, uh, I was in, I think it was the Emirates in Dubai. And this guy goes to me, he's like, you know, there's a guy, really funny guy, does phone pranks, has your name. You guys should work together. I was like, for <laughs> Yeah. It didn't occur to you I could be the same person. They were huge everywhere. And at the time in the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, it was really restricted on men and women interacting with each other. So there used to there used to be a big thing with with a, a, a Bluetooth. So if in Saudi Arabia, uh, for guys to hit on women, especially at the time, there was religious police and you couldn't do that. Um, you couldn't talk to a woman. You couldn't touch a woman. The restaurants don't have windows in restaurants where people sit together. And if there are windows, then the men are they're alone and I don't even think women are allowed in there. Uh, things have changed apparently now. But at the time, so for men to hit on girls, they would actually drive up to them, open their window. The woman would open their window and they'd throw a phone into the car to talk to them. Another thing that they used to do, they'd go to malls and the malls would have separation of men and women. You'd see all the men seated in one place, all the women seated together, all staring at their phones. They'd open up their Bluetooth and they'd basically start texting each other randomly and trying to figure out who's who through, you know, whatever they could, clues. They'd send pictures to one another. And even in the Middle East, my phone tap went viral like that through the Bluetooth cafes, as they used to call them and stuff like that. So it was crazy. It was a huge boost for my career. And so we, we had the phone pranks. I did that for Mix FM. While we were producing that, I put on my first ever show where I charged people to buy tickets. I wasn't on Mix FM yet. And the way I would market was on MySpace. So what I would do is I would go to people's MySpace pages and post the flyer. And I could do 14 a day, max. That was it. Uh, because the internet was so slow in Lebanon. So take me that much time and I think I, I the posters would be JPEG images that I would keep somewhere around 100 to 120 kilobytes max couldn't have been more and I could only do 14 a day to log into their page post it on their thing and do that of people who were popular MySpace pages in Lebanon at the time and word of mouth my PR skills people I knew people who knew about me I announced I'm doing a show on my MySpace page I had some followers as well I put it out there and the, the thing was, to do that show, I couldn't find a place to do a show. Nobody wanted me, like, what stand-up comedy? I'd be like, just give me your place. I'd go and beg places, pubs, bars, clubs, anything. Get out of here. We don't know who you are. And you're just going to talk? Why would anybody pay to see one guy on stage? How much are the tickets? 20 bucks? What, 20,000? I think it was, or 10 bucks. I was telling we could sell tickets for, if it's a good venue, I was like, we could do them for 20 bucks. Uh, 13 bucks, which is 20,000 Lebanese pounds. Six dollars, 10,000 Lebanese pounds. Three dollars, 5,000 Lebanese pounds. <clears throat> and they're like, why would people pay that much to see one person on stage when they can pay that much to see four, a band? It was, there was no understanding of the culture of stand-up. It wasn't yet known the potential of what a moneymaker could be for these people because the overhead was so low and the money was good. 
until um, I had a f- my best friend Nadim, Nadim Yamin. His uncle owns a hotel in Lebanon called Hotel de Ville, Hotel de Ville. And it's right next to the French embassy, next to a university called uh, the USG or Université Saint-Joseph, the University of St. Joseph, which is a university, incidentally, my dad graduated from. And I went to him and he has a cafe in the bottom of it called Café Rue 75 or 75, which is 75 in French. So Café Rue 75. And it was a like a coffee shop at the bottom of the hotel where a lot of students would congregate. And I asked him if I could do the show there. And he said, sure, but he doesn't have any lighting for sound. They have basically the speaker system for the music. They could hook a mic into it. There's a PA, you know, kind of thing. I was like, that'll work. I said, can we dim the light and put a spotlight? He's like, I don't have a spotlight. There's nowhere to put one. What he did have in the middle of a room was an elevator. And I figured, I asked, can we keep the elevator door open and use the light from the elevator? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, we could. So basically, I did that. I decided we're going to do the show there. That was the best I could do. Using the sound of the speakers built into the place and the light behind me. I'm standing in front of the elevator, the light behind me with the crowd wrapped around me. So in front of me and around me. So I'm going to have to move to this side to address this, this, the crowd on this side, people in front of me, people to this side. So semicircular kind of arrangement. I'm like, let's do it. So I put the show on sale and I expected maybe 20 people would show up. And I had about 20 minutes of material set up. <clears throat> we got there and we were sold out and people were buying tickets at the door. And we sold, I remember this and I'll never forget it. We sold 160 tickets. My first show. I had underestimated my reach because I had already built somewhat of a following from all the years of doing stand-up. People were hyped. And nothing like this had happened in the country before. And the owner of Mix FM, Raj, comes in with his partner and Chris, they're coming to the show. A very prominent Lebanese comedian called Mario Basile, very famous. He hears about the show and he's like, I'm gonna go check out this comic. And I wanna give a shout out to that guy because a lot of people in this industry, whether it's in America or in the Middle East, there's a lot of backstabbing. But one thing that Mario's always been is a really nice guy to me and very supportive from day one. So shout out to him. He comes in, I'm like, holy shit, we got like celebrities, we got mix fm we and hot women girls i had crushes on and it was and like guys that were cool that i like didn't really used to hang out with me they're like never were coming to your show i was like oh my god like this is it like it's happening we were so inundated with the extra capacity that before the show started i was helping the staff put chairs to fit everybody in i was sick i got ill because i was so nervous i wasn't sleeping i was obsessing over it i was terrified So I had a fever, I was sick, I was helping people put chairs, and um, we were supposed to start at 9, it was like 9.45, we weren't even close to starting, and then I had one of my best friends, Hassan Bwede, to introduce me, he came up and he said, he made my introduction, black belt in stand-up, he said something like that, Nimr Abu Nassar, the crowd goes wild, I descend from the elevator, which is still one of my most epic entrances ever, In the elevator, in the middle of the room, I start coming down with the light. I'm doing a pose like that. I have a black belt on and I'm carrying the mic stand like it's a a bow staff (coughs) for a martial artist. And, uh, And the show begins. 20 minutes in, I'm doing great. My material's done. I wasn't prepared to do any longer. I wasn't prepared for this many people to show up. And frankly... 
I thought, I'll just do 20, 30 minutes. I'll improvise 10 minutes on top of the 20 that I got. Maximum 15 minutes. That's 35 minutes. That's enough. Tickets, I really do think, were either 5,000 or 10,000 Lebanese pounds. And the guy would make money because there was food and drinks and stuff that he could sell. <coughs> and I just wanted to get people in there. But to me, I understood the gravity of the situation. Before I descended in that elevator, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, Nimmer, this is, this is it. Mix FM are here. Mario Basile is here. The people that love you are here. If you blow this, it's over. Not just for me, but for the Middle East. I knew that night was the most significant night in my career and in the possibility of this industry ever becoming a thing. So when I came down in that elevator, that realization did not weigh me down. It lifted me up. It made me say to myself, just fucking do it. Do it. Pull it off. All that stands between you and your destiny is tonight. So fucking do it. And I went down with that attitude. 20 minutes in, the material ran out. And I remember, and I have a tape of this, and I will find it one day. I started to kind of hesitate. I forgot some of my material. I tried to remember. I was like, I had another joke. Why can't I remember it? People were seeing it. I remember at one point in my head, I'm like, Nimmer. When you were on AUB stage for the first time, and I talked about this in a previous episode, you had to improvise 45 minutes of material. And you weren't worried about what you had written. Just be you. And I started to improvise. And the show ended up being an hour and 13 minutes long. And some of the best jokes I've ever made on stage that made my career were improvised that day on that show. The adrenaline and the realization of the significance of that moment pushed me to the best version of myself. It was like an incredible woman that made me the best man I could be. And some of the greatest jokes I've ever come up with came that night, improvised in the moment, in their rudimentary stages, but enough to get explosive laughter from people. I finished the show. It was an incredible success. People were taking pictures with me. I helped the staff put everything back. I turned on my car that night. There was a military checkpoint right after that, which are common in Lebanon. It's nothing crazy. Um, just to keep everything secure always. They keep them there. I drove by the military checkpoint. Which is Arabic for, uh, I hope your hard work goes recognized by God. Watan is... Uh, means country literally and we call we have an endearing way of calling people who give service to our country watan which means we're calling them nation you're the spirit of the nation and i drove past and i screamed i'm not making this up i was driving and i just let out this incredible guttural scream of elation incredible emotion and just the realization that today was going to be the first day of the rest of my life. I knew it. I had done it. I did what I needed to do. And I saw it. I felt it. And I knew it. All I had to do now was work. And um, that was the greatest night of my career. And it will always be. I didn't sleep that night. I was trembling. I pulled off. What everybody had told me could not be done. Nobody will come see shows. It's in English, not in Arabic. It's not political or religious. Nobody's going to care. You're not going to be able to do a whole set. 
There aren't any other comics to open for you. You can't do a show without anybody warming up for you. What if your jokes fail? What if you're not funny? I remember my friend Hassan, who who, who hosted me, who told me to come down. He called me the day before. He's like, dude, uh, I'm really freaking out about tomorrow. Like, what if people don't laugh? I'm like, hey, you know, thanks for the pep talk. I appreciate it. Like, even people who believed in me were afraid for me. And the majority didn't believe in me and were putting me down. But that night, I did what I had to do. And... And I, I was sick and I hadn't slept and everything was against me and I was working a full-time job and it was, but I pulled off the impossible. Watch uh, the movie Comedian for Seinfeld, which is a documentary. You never try out new material in front of a crowd that is paying to see you. You never go, and I, I did a whole show of new material and I fucking crushed it, man. I knew that I was destined to be this because I had greatness in me and when I needed it, the greatness was there. And that was the first day of the rest of my life. And that was probably the first day of stand-up comedy in the Middle East. That was the most impeccably powerful moment to define the entire way moving forward. And in the next episode, I'm going to take you through what happened next. How it started to grow in tandem with what I started doing with MixFM. How things started to grow there as well. And how I started to find fame in this industry and recognition. All to the backdrop of numerous political assassinations, car bombings, a civil war, civil unrest, and some of the most fierce things that ever happened in terms of death happening in the country. Whether it's in the episode after this one or the one after that, the time that I had to drive through a storm of of bullets over the Syrian border in a taxi to hop a flight to Dubai to represent my country in the middle of war. Uh, Stories that are incredible, that I have so many stories, it kind of gets hard to see which ones when I did shows during... Uh, uh, bomb blast events where the country was empty because everyone was home out of fear but my show that fit 300 people had over 800 people who came out despite the danger despite me saying don't come out I'm going to be there if you want to grab a drink and I'll just be with you and we'll kind of you know talk the night away so that you don't feel any of this anxiety over 800 people showed up sitting in each other's laps shows that go on for hours a spirit that began that started to define that started to point to The definition of what Lebanon is as we, the new generation, wanted it. And the excitement, I'm getting goosebumps just remembering my emotions at that time, of all of us knowing that we were beginning to take our future back into our own hands. And that's what we're going to pick up next time. I'll I'll leave it here for now and answer some of your questions uh, that you uh, have sent in. I'm just opening my phone here. Because I have them screenshotted and saved to a folder so that I can do this properly. Here we go. Um, Let me get to it. Right here. Okay. Sorry for taking time. I should be better prepared for this next time. And I will. What did I call the the VFP questions, right? That was what... Yep. Pod questions VFP. So I got a question from uh, uh, Sarah Morijan. She said, in the fourth episode of your podcast, you said that you should be always funny, even in serious situations. Do you make jokes when you're arguing with your fiance? And how did you first react to it? Great question. I do make jokes when I'm arguing with my fiance. Doesn't go well. Uh, It depends on the joke. I do it when I know it. You have to be uh, strategic with your joke telling. So in serious situations, humor is a very powerful weapon to diffuse tension. But if you've messed up, 
if it's your fault, I don't think you should be joking because that means you're making light of the situation. So yes, you should always use it in serious situations. If you're going to make a joke at something you messed up on, I'll usually make a joke to kind of further how much I feel guilty about this. And I follow it with a sincere comment because if I just make jokes, it doesn't go well, not only with my girl, but any girl or any guy. Uh, if a guy is angry with his girlfriend or a guy is angry with his boyfriend, a girl is angry with her girlfriend, straight or gay, it doesn't matter. The dynamic is it's not sexual based. It's based on the legitimacy of somebody else's feelings. And there's a thin line between making somebody laugh to feel easy and laughing at somebody's expense. So I always tread that line carefully. And I think it's a skill. And I do encourage people to try it and to fail and to get better at it because it's a skill you're going to use a lot in your life. <clears throat> Here's another question um, from Froglist, who is always here on the uh, premieres as well. Shout out to him. What differences do you notice with the teenagers, early 20s kids in Lebanon versus America? Is there a big difference? What's incredible is that as America has started to become more divided, um, American youth has come to resemble more of the Lebanese youth in their drive, their political awareness, their wokeness for lack of a better term, the youth in Lebanon are my heroes, and uh, I am consider myself one of them, but I am inspired by them at every turn, because against impossible odds, they strive to be better and do better, and American youth are the same now, they're really getting into that thing where they hold people accountable for things that are that they disagree with, and whether or not they're right, they stand for something now, and as they try to find their way, they stand for something. It's no longer a generation of people partying and trying to waste time. It's now a generation of people who want to make a better life for themselves, and I think the Lebanese have always been that way, and the youth really made that their mission in Lebanon, and they're united behind trying to make a better life for themselves. So I find a lot of similarities between the Lebanese and the American youth. They're both very romantic uh, in the sense of advent romance being adventure. Romanka, as they say, in one piece. A question from Tony Deeb. If you had to pick one of these comedians to go on tour with, who would you pick and why? Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, or Kevin Hart? All the love and big shout out from Syria. Shout out to everybody in Syria as well. I hope you guys are doing all right. Oh man, if I had to pick one, are you kidding me? I'll tell you, I wouldn't. That's a hard decision to make. I wouldn't pick Kevin Hart simply because he's the newer one. In terms of people who are big influences on my life, it's Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. They're two of my favorite comics. And Kevin Hart is one of my favorite comics. He's an incredible human being, an incredible, credible artist. But like, he's going to be around for a lot longer. So if I had to choose, I would, have to, I would choose Chappelle or Rock. As to who I would choose from the two, I can't make that decision, man. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I really can't make that decision. They're both such incredible titans of the genre. But thanks for that question. <laughs> uh, and I'll take the last question, Jean-Pierre Khoury. Um, I have a question about your experiences. How many times have you actually failed and how badly before you actually reached the turning point that you had been working and waiting for? I still fail. Uh, the turning point was what I talked about in the episode today. That was the turning point for me to know that it was now, now you go. All or nothing. I hadn't quit my job yet. It was now that I'm going to have to quit my... Like, this was it. It's serious now. People are taking me seriously. Maybe 160 people. That's not a huge crowd for some people. That's a lot of people for me. That was the turning point. As for when 
that I, I never stopped failing. You never stop failing. Every time I step on a stage to try out a new bit, to try out new material, to write a new show, I fail. I try out something, it doesn't work out, it does work out. You're constantly failing in this industry as you try to better yourself. And I think failure needs a, a redefinition. I think failure needs to be changed. Instead of the word failure, it should be success in progress. I really believe that. Because you're you're destined to fail. You're destined to try something and it's not going to work out. You try marketing your show in a specific way, it doesn't sell the tickets. You 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 try out a joke and it doesn't land. Um, you try a career move and it doesn't work out. You give your heart to a certain girl and it doesn't pan out, uh, or a guy or whatever. But I'm talking about my case. Everything in life is trying, and when you try and you fail, your success comes quicker, and your success becomes recognized quicker. Sometimes you won't even know that you're succeeding had you not failed earlier to know what you're looking for. You date a girl, it's a relationship, it ends, and for you it's the end of the world. But now you know exactly what you're looking for, and the next time you come across a woman, you know exactly that this is the woman for you because you know what you're looking for. And with every relationship in my life, I've gotten better with the women that I've spent my time with because they've more closely resembled the perfect woman for me until I found, of course, the perfect woman for me, which is my current fiance, Reem. So... In failure, there is great success. So thank you very much for that question. I hope that that answered that for you. And that's the end of the episode today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Please let your friends know if they're going to be in Phoenix or Tempe or in Arizona this weekend. Friday and Saturday, I'm at the Tempe Improv. Um, on April 24, I'm at the Improv in Irvine, the Irvine Improv. Um, I'll be dropping by the Comedy Store on the 13th of April on Sunday. I'll be doing a set there. So if you're in Los Angeles, I'll be on a show. Thanks to Mark Saratella for uh, having me on his show. Um, and on May 4th, I'm going to be in Toronto. So if you guys are in Toronto, also had there. Tickets to all my shows are on sale at nimmercomedy.com. That's N-E-M-R comedy.com. And on next week's episode of the podcast, I will have information where you can finally watch No Bombing in Beirut and my other specials. That's it from me. I enjoy these more than you'll ever know. Thank you so much, as always, uh, for spreading the word. Available on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify very, very soon. It takes a bit of time, but once we get going, it'll be done. Please share this podcast with your friends, your family. Let them know about it. Subscribe if you're here on YouTube or iTunes. On YouTube, uh, it's great to subscribe, even if you're listening on iTunes, because whether you watch this podcast on my YouTube channel or the many other types of videos I put out, we have a cooking video coming out that's really funny very soon. I do a lot of sketch comedy and stuff, so please do. Thank you guys so much. I love you all, and I'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye.